It's been over 40 years, and Fangoria is better than ever with each issue bringing you 100 pages of exclusive, carefully curated content honoring horrors past, present, and future. These articles and interviews will never be published online, so the only way to read them is by getting your hands on a physical... Physical? That's not a word. Leave that in. Well, what the hell? Collectible copy of your own. We can't give anything away because we want the experience to be a surprise, but we can safely say that you do not want to miss a single page. And on this ad read, I will say that it would be particularly wise for KingCast listeners to sign up for uh, a Fangoria subscription. The KingCast is going to start having a little bit more of a presence in Fangoria magazine, and that kicks off with their next issue, which is dropping in October. I've got a... I've got a piece in that issue about uh, needful things and issue after that, Eric's going to be taking a crack at it. So uh, sign up, head over to Fangoria.com to learn more and to subscribe while you're there. Make sure to enter the promo code KingCast to save 25% off your yearly subscription. Now on with the show. My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Well, sometimes that is better. Hello and welcome back to the Kingcast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name's Scott Wampler. And I'm Eric Vespi. And we are your hosts. Our guest today is one of our absolute favorite modern character actors, and his list of credits is, quite frankly, an embarrassment of riches. David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, Steven Soderbergh's Full Frontal, Brian De Palma's The Black Dahlia, the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Mad Men, Veep, Need I Go On, this guy's an absolute fucking legend, and he's here today to talk about Stephen King and David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the KingCast stage, Mr. Patrick Fischler. Patrick, how are you doing today? Hey, thank you. That is quite the uh, entrance, and I want everyone to always introduce me just like you did. <laughs> Do you walk around and just think, I've worked with Coen Brothers, Soderbergh, Lynch, your career is insane. These are these are amazing credits. Uh, I wake up every morning being like, I am incredible. <laughs> I am, no, I, you know, it's just kind of amazing that I, 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 I'm just so fortunate because when I was, I, I've loved all of these directors for my whole life, and I've always had sort of that goal of, I want to work with this person, and then it happens. And then I say, I want to work with this person, and then it happens. And uh, it keeps happening. So I'm incredibly fortunate. I mean, sure. all the guy, all the ones you named, I mean, when I was, you know, like young, Lynch was everything to me. I mean, yeah. everything. Sort of from Elephant Man to Blue Velvet, it was just my sort of early teens. And uh and the Coen brothers was sort of my twenties and De Palma was my preteen. I mean, it really is like, it's right. just going, it's been pretty amazing. I'm very fortunate. How do you feel about, you know, your, your sequence in Mulholland drive is iconic. I, I think it's fair to, to say that. And it has achieved that not only by being in, you know, one of David Lynch's all time best movies, which is in and of itself is an, an accomplishment, but 
also you've been memed to to death <laughs> over over this thing like i there's literally not a day on twitter where i don't see your face yeah you know where someone's doing a reaction image of you fainting in that in that alleyway next to uh is it is it dinkies winkies winkies oh i was so yeah. close god damn yeah very close how do you feel about that i i mean i think it's I think it's fucking hilarious. I love it. I mean, it's awesome. And I, I, what everyone fills it in with every time is great. I didn't know when I shot that it was going to be anything other than, you know, at the time, an ABC pilot. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't even a movie. I didn't right. know what the fuck was going on. And I was a Twin Peaks fanatic uh, in college. And so, yeah, I love it. I, uh, I, I please meme the shit out of it. Keep it going. And it's just weird to continually see myself sort of frozen at, you know, 30. Uh, you know, however old I was. Yeah, 30. For real. <laughs> yeah. And at, at your mention of it being a pilot, maybe uh, casual Lynch fans don't know that. But yeah, Mulholland Drive was originally the pilot for a, a TV series. Yeah. And this is like one of the funniest stories to me is that Lynch like made this thing as a pilot turned it into ABC and they're like, no, absolutely not. We're passing on this. And he was like, okay. And he went back and shot like another like 30, 40 minutes and then was nominated for best picture with it. It's it's kind of surreal and amazing. And uh, of course, ABC said no. I mean, (laughs) right. Of course they did. You watch that, that first 90 minutes and imagine those execs, you know, in a room being like, what, the fuck did he just give us? <laughs> exactly. uh, but you know, it was it was you know coming off Twin Peaks, I guess maybe five years earlier, or something like that, six years earlier. So he, they were wanting to be back in the Lynch game, and uh, he wasn't playing around. But it was great. I remember we shot it; it didn't get picked up. It went away, and then I got a letter from him, just sort of that Studio Canal in France was giving him money to turn it into a movie, and I just went back and shot that. There's like one shot of me at the end when Naomi Watts is in the diner and looks over and sees me like right. that, that was added. But the whole scene I did was shot for the pilot. I'm sure you've gotten this question a million times, but I so rarely get to speak to somebody who has actually, you know, worked on camera for Lynch. But what is what is he like day to day on a set? Like what's your feeling about him or your memory of him like as a director taking direction from him during that sequence? It's a great question. And actually, I I really believe this. I am the actor I am because of him. For real. For real. Fully of the film and TV actor I am because of, of David Lynch. I, I mean, it's all time keeps going. And so I keep sort of telling this story that I don't, I'm like, did this happen like this? But I'm going to just believe it did. But he, you know, we did this rehearsal for the scene and, and I, you know, I feel like I was overacting and he's just such a lovely guy and kind of came over and was just like, this is a terrible imitation I'm going to do, by the way. He doesn't really sound like this, but he was just like, you know, Patrick, great. That's great. But, you know, listen, you, you just had a dream. It's just, you know, it's a, it was a bad dream. And I was like, uh-huh. And I could tell he was sort of saying like, you don't have to do so much. And right. tone it I, down. Yeah. And I remember something clicking in me at that time that still, you know, 20 years later is 
everything when I'm acting. And I have to be reminded of it still because, you know, we're all actors. I mean, all of us who are shooting and we're all kind of like our sometimes forget that it's like the camera's right there. And, you know, I was 20, I don't even know how old we shot it, but he's amazing. And also the most lovely dude and just the best energy. And I got to go back and, you know, do Twin Peaks with him, the revival of Twin Peaks. Yeah. It was just like five minutes had passed, even though it had been sort of, you know, 17 years. And he's everything. I would drop anything I was doing to go and work with him if he wanted me to be there. This is probably a very basic thing to say, but Lynch, I think, captures the feeling of a nightmare better than any other filmmaker who's ever lived. Yep. You know, and I guess that's... I'm sort of pre-answering my own question, but do you have a take on, on why that sequence is so terrifying? You know, um, on the, on the surface, it's, it's, it's just two guys talking and mm-hmm. they walk outside. They see mm-hmm. a, a, a creepy lady behind a, a behind mm-hmm. a wall. You know, it's not <laughs> overtly terrifying. And it's one of the scariest things I've ever fucking seen in a movie. It's like, it's all it's all him. I mean, I will not take any credit for anything other than just to tell you the way he shoots stuff and his use of sound and his pacing. It all is, yeah yeah. That's all of it. It's everything. It's all just it's all just him. He's just sort of magic, and uh, everything he does is off a little bit, and that makes it scarier when it wants to be scarier or funnier when it's trying to be fun. You know, it's all just like a little notch off. Um, And for me, that's like a dream. Dreams are always something's, you know, you know, something's off. You can always kind of tell when you're in a dream that it's a dream or that it's a nightmare. And he, he just does that so well. Any chance that you might pop up in Wisteria Lane, the new project he's working on? No, not that I know of. And I, Probably, I mean, I would tell you, but no, I, I don't know anything about that. I mean, no one knows anything about it except he's doing it. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I keep hearing rumors like it's it's peaks related or maybe it's not. And I, mean, I don't know what to think. I, I just know I know trying to like you know predict Lynch is a a fool's game. <laughs> you know? There's no point to it, none, right. zero. And uh, but like I said, man, if he called right now, I would just get off this call and go (laughs) we would not blame you either thank you by the way that's that's one of the the most enjoyable things about the return that's the last time i can remember like i guess this goes on with like the mandalorian and you know these like marvel series that are on disney plus right now Mm -hmm. but the summer of twin peaks the return is one of my fondest memories Mm -hmm. you know everyone i knew watched it you know, I had a big party for it the night it it premiered and and I had like 30 people in my house all sitting and watching it. And that whole summer we were speculating so uselessly on where the show was going. Like yeah. no one no one had any fucking idea where yeah. this thing was going as it as it proved to us week after week after week. But man, that that sense of community that came with it mm-hmm. of like experiencing this thing in one hour chunks and oh man. It's it's corny, but it's like, man, I really hold on to that memory. We we don't get that anymore. That's something we've sort of talked about on this show before with like, you know, Stephen King miniseries from back in the early 90s. Uh-huh. Like, you know, The Stand or, uh, yeah. you know, to a lesser extent, say uh, The Langoliers or Tommy Knockers. Uh-huh. It was a big one. Uh-huh. But like mm-hmm. that idea of like you watching a thing in installments and then just 
not being able to shut up about it afterwards. I kind of feel like that doesn't exist a lot anymore. I think that HBO, no. it exists on HBO. Like Mayor of Easttown kind of did that. People yeah. were really, it's become sort of the murder mystery of like, you know, HBO's, you know, done it so well with big little lot, like the right. weekly, I, I hate binging. I hate it. I don't. Yeah, agreed. I, agreed. My daughter is 12 and all she wants to do is binge. She gets mad when something's not bingeable. And I infuriate her because when Stranger Things comes, I won't let us watch five in the night. And uh, (laughs) I'm a big one for, I really feel like it makes everything better to just have to wait and to think about it. And, you know, I'm also old and grew up in the 80s when we had to wait for everything. But um, (laughs) I I really do think HBO is kind of one of the only ones fully doing it right now. And they're so smart. Like Sunday night. You know, yeah. mastered this kind of you know sort of beach read mystery thing that makes everybody be like, oh, I can't wait till next week. Right, or Game of Watchmen. Thrones was a big one. It was a big Shoot, one. Game of Thrones, yeah. Watchmen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The anticipation was was part of it. Yeah. Before we uh, move on to the topic at hand, I have a couple of things I want to bring up as well. Uh, uh, I, I'm I'm a big David Lynch fan. Uh, Scott, you know, eclipses my love of that. As much as he loves Lynch, I love De Palma. So, like, Blowout is in my top five, probably of all time. Like, I, I adore that dude. I adore his style. Phantom of the Paradise, Carrie, especially that early run that that first like yep. 15, 20 years up to like Mission Impossible. Like, he is, pardon the pun, untouchable. Like, you know, in, in that in that era. Um, so, what was he like to uh, to work with? Was he? I, I could not love him more. And we will talk soon about. The, his king uh, about Carrie, but um, <laughs> mm-hmm, right. I was obsessed with Dress to Kill, and I was obsessed right. with it. like his sort of like you said. There's like a seven year run of movies that I couldn't love more. Um, so I was really, really once again. I was like 33 when I did that movie. Um, you know, it was an interesting experience. We were all in Bulgaria, mm-hmm. and I kind of feel like. I didn't really get to know him. Um, I don't know. It was, I, I never want to bullshit. <laughs> right. So I never want to be like, it was amazing. Um, sure. I feel lucky that I got to work with him, but I never really even felt like I, I got to work with him. It's like sort of felt like, I don't know, maybe I, maybe it was on me. Maybe I was too nervous. I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm very good in that movie. And I don't think that a lot. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not good at shit. Like I know when I'm good and I know when I'm not good. And I'd say Black Dolly is one of the ones like, yeah, you know, it's fine. Well, Um, yeah. And I think the movie's fine. It wasn't what I wanted it to be. Cause I'll, I'll tell you, man, when we were shooting it, I was like, holy shit. Like everyone in every department had been nominated for an Oscar or won an Oscar, you know? And then when I saw it, I was like, Oh, okay. No, yeah, it, it doesn't quite come together. And I'll, I'll, I'll you know, and as guess, much of a De Palma apologist as I am, like I, you know, I fully admit that. But uh, but there's but you're sequences right. in it that are great. There's moments I would say we were all in different movies. That's the thing, right? I felt there, like, there's no cohesion. Yeah. No, and I felt like I don't know what he was like in the sort of 70s and 80s with actors, but I didn't feel like he kind of really directed anybody to kind of all get into the same movie, which is really key. Right. If you cast right. a bunch of actors and they're all in different movies, it's just not going to work. And sure. that's ultimately what I felt about it. And I did feel that on set. I remember feeling like, wait, I kind of feel like Aaron Eckhart and Josh and Scarlett, we're all in, and me, what, what movies are we all in? 
Right. And uh, it turned out maybe I was right. But I, you know, listen, <laughs> the, the guy is just one of the all time greatest directors, in my opinion. And like, you know, and I really, I showed my wife blow out a couple of years ago and mm. she was like, Jesus, this is great. And, you know, it, and I saw Dress to Kill recently. I watched that again. And once again, mm. there's just, no one did it like he did it. I mean, really, he invented a whole way. <laughs> For real. Funnily enough, I interviewed um, Michael Caine once, and we we had like a 45-minute-long interview, uh, which was, of course, great and mind-blowing. It was for a movie that nobody gave a shit. I didn't give a shit about. I don't think he gave a shit about. So most of the interview was was just him, me talking about. So I started the the chat talking about a movie he did called Gambit in the 60s that I uh-huh. um, I fucking love. It's him and Shirley MacLaine. It was his first American movie. And he. Yeah. I think that impressed him that I even knew that that movie existed. And uh-huh. uh and so he was very open about stuff and we were talking about Hitchcock and uh and he was saying that Hitchcock offered him the lead in Frenzy which wow. is a serial killer thing and he was just wow. like no absolutely not I wouldn't do that in the back of my mind I'm like but like fucking 6 years or 8 years later you ended up <laughs> doing it for De Palma you know oh my God, but he, that's he, so true he, yeah he, yeah he high horsed it you know for for Alfred fucking Hitchcock but <laughs> uh you know why did he so say no De Palma. wait why did he say no uh, he just said that that wasn't he didn't want to be a serial killer. He didn't want to be a murderer. It was too it was too disgusting. It was too like at that point in his career, I guess he had done uh, this was a, it must have been Get Carter uh-huh. era. And so I, I think he was more interested in doing like, you know, kind of weird, edgy British shit at that point. Yeah. He he just felt that frenzy was uh, too exploitative and, and uh, you know, and this is the man who would later go on to star in Jaws, the revenge. So, no, oh my God. <laughs> but, uh, but he, but he said funnily enough that when Hitchcock approached him, he, uh, he turned him down. He's like, then I saw that they cat, whoever they cat, I forgot the actor's name. They cast in the movie is essentially a guy that could play Michael Caine's brother. He looks just <laughs> like Michael Caine. He's got the same uh-huh. kind of wiry hair and all that stuff. So he's like, yeah, so they they, they cast me without casting me. <laughs> totally. Way. That's funny. Um, that is funny. So, so there's my Michael Caine story. The other thing I wanted to bring up, Patrick, so uh, unless I get this wrong, uh, because I pulled this information off of the internet, uh, which is notoriously accurate, um, I think you might be indirectly responsible for one of the most surreal mornings of my life. And that is because I short the short version of the story is i met uh kurt russell at um uh, sundance he was there with a, a movie called the battered bastards of baseball which he produced that's all about his father it's a documentary about his father and i interviewed him there uh you know in a big group it was me as a single interviewer but it was like him and all the filmmakers and who are all his nephews and shit uh, and afterwards i said like listen sometimes you know i was writing for a site called ain't it cool news then and like we do these long in-depth kind of look back interviews would you be interested in doing that and he said, yeah, you know, absolutely. I had a good time talking to you. And and uh, uh, we set it up and he asked me to meet him at a restaurant called Patrick's Roadhouse, <laughs> uh, which uh, if I'm if the Internet is is uh, correct. About oh, this, yeah. That was started by your father and named after you. Right. That is all correct information. The Internet got it right. 
Yeah. Yes. So one morning, one morning, a couple of weeks uh, later, uh, and this is all via text message with Kurt Russell, by the way, he's like, you'll love this about me. I don't have a publicist. Just reach out to me directly. And he gave me his phone number. And the only time I've, I've tried to text him a couple times after and zero response, but he, he, he at least showed up. <laughs> but so I, we went, we went to uh, Patrick's and we had the, the most surreal thing where I wasn't sure if he was going to show and he shows up and the fucking whole place just stops and sees uh-huh. him. Oh my God. And like, cause yeah. he's looking around for me at the tables or whatever. And I, see him looking around and like people are like noticing he's he's there and so uh we had this great long you know hour-long breakfast at patrick's which was delicious uh-huh. and uh and i got to uh pay the bill for him so i got to buy kurt russell <laughs> and, and and when i say got to i don't mean like I he's like all right to. good thanks guys and left you know he he tried and i was just like absolutely not i am paying for kurt russell's breakfast are you kidding uh, me? The, he and goldie uh yeah they came in when i was like a kid i mean my dad opened it when i was five or six so like 1976 and uh he uh they used to come in in the 80s and i guess you know still go in i I, my brother runs it um and it's been there you know for we're going on 50 years soon it's crazy damn that's amazing y'all did all right through covid uh i think my brother did all right yeah i mean you know it became you know to go and seating outside and all the way other people handled it but uh i think it did okay yeah it's so so funny such a small world that is the the thing that happens to me probably more than anything is you know whatever thing i'm shooting wherever i'm on location wherever and i mention anything and people are like wait what Patrick <laughs> is named after you and i'm like yeah yep you know it's just everybody knows it because it's just been down there on the beach for so long and it's bright green yeah. yeah that was my first time there and it was it was absolutely delicious and it was uh uh, you know, but it was a very surreal morning. And when I, when I saw that little bit <laughs> from you, I'm just like, holy shit, there's a weird connection there. I know that's so funny. Totally. I'm imagining Patrick's eventual obituary and it's just like oh namesake of Patrick's diner. It, it, <laughs> guys. Um, also, me. he was in Mulholland drive that's and some it. other things. Yeah. <laughs> that is exactly what it'll be. Believe me. So let's, let's talk about your Stephen King origin story. When did he first pop up under your radar? Is it? Uh, 1970 i'm gonna go what year did carrie come out was it 77 sounds right six i think maybe let's go six and close this is a true story um my brother who is about 12 years older than me so he was 18 at the time and i was six had a date and he had to babysit me and Mm. so he took me to go see carrie in the theater when i was fucking six years old and it completely traumatized me as you can imagine, <laughs> uh, of all movies. I mean, I will never forget it. I think planted not only my love for Stephen King, but my love for horror movies, which mm-hmm. has existed my whole life and that I'm sort of now pushing on to my daughter. But uh, it was a little too young to see that movie, especially in a theater, because I remember I bawling my eyes out. I was so scared. But that was my introduction to film Stephen King was that. And then the first King book I ever read was The the Dead Zone. And probably I was, I don't know, let's go with 11, 12. Yeah, something like that. Um, and then that was the first, and then I went through, I mean, my the 80s for me was all reading as many King books as I could. But yeah, I mean, Carrie is still, I'm in my TV room in my house right now. And I have old um, lobby cards from mm-hmm. you know, lobbies of movie theaters, and uh, I only I have seven of them, and one of them is Carrie. 
Uh, it's right there. And so that's how much I love. What's the image? It's when um, she's come home from the prom and she's showered and she's going into the whatever room that is and Piper Laurie's behind the door. Right behind it. the door. Yeah. Yep. I know exactly. Yeah, I collect movie memorabilia and movie paper. So I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, so that is, I'm looking at it right now. And it is, and I remember showing my wife, Carrie, because I was like, this is not the movie you think it is. It's so much better. But on top of it, whether you like the movie or not, it's two of like the best film performances. Sissy Spacek mm. and Piper Laurie are both so incredible in that movie. That's number one. And number two, I challenge anybody to like that 20 minute sequence, split screen, yeah. blood, prom, Amy Irv, all of that. That is, that's just one of my favorite moments in movie history. I can watch that segment 30 times in a row and yeah. still be blown away by it. Pure I got a couple of questions on the back, back of that. Okay. Uh, one, did you, did you get a chance to tell Brian De Palma about yes. seeing Carrie at six? <laughs> I told him at my audition, actually. <laughs> that's how you got the part probably i, I owe this kid i, I traumatized vaguely, him at six I, I vaguely told him that i kind of more went into what a huge fan i was and then i saw carrie when i was six by accident because my brother took me but yes so he i think I, I told him that yeah right on and my second question is so did you keep up with reading king after the dead zone oh god yeah i think i've read i mean i've read a lot of king i i i kind of haven't read it as much in my later years of my life, but for sure, eighties and nineties. I mean, I, I read almost anything he ever wrote. Do you have a favorite? Probably the stand. Um, mm, yeah. Because right it on. really blew, it really blew me away when I read it. I, I never want to read it again. I don't <laughs> need to go back and read it again. Um, maybe I do. I don't know. Uh, I also was pretty blown you away. Should. by I should. All right, fine. Yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it. I was, <laughs> Pretty blown away by um, how different Carrie the book was. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I read that after, you know, as like a teenager or whatever. And I was like, wait, this is not the same thing. But uh, yeah, I've read a lot. I've read a lot of King. I, like I said, though, I sort of haven't in my later in my later time. But um, I, I'm trying to think what else. I mean, I've loved a lot of different. I really loved and I haven't gone back to it. So I'm going to, but like different seasons. That's what it was called, right? right? Yeah. 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 I loved that. It's um, with the uh, Shawshank and uh, exactly. the body and the body. Yeah. yeah, I mean those are that those are those are pretty great. Yeah, so I, I'm a big big King fan. I really really am, and I I've pretty much seen 95 percent of anything that's been made of uh, his, even the really bad ones. I mean, there's a lot of really bad ones. You know, all the children uh, of the as, corn sequels. Have you watched those? We, as we have learned doing yeah. this show, um, you know. Really, in yeah. in fact, I, I was looking earlier today. I got curious about. You know, we looked this up before we even started doing the show. It was like, how many? Well, okay. Well, how many different adaptations are there? Uh-huh. How many episodes could we feasibly get out of this? And um, the number is about eighty right now. Wow. That's that's the number of Stephen King feature film adaptations, or you know, notable TV adaptations. That's including, like, say. Um, Tales from the Dark Side has a King segment in it uh-huh. or, you know, like shit like that, you know, where it's it's not necessarily a full blown King thing, but it's that's that's basically the gist. Uh-huh. You got about 80 to work with. Mm-hmm. And I went through and I was like, you know, before we started doing the show, I think I had seen I'm going to estimate I'd seen half of these and 
looking over it this morning and like checking off a list, I was like, holy shit, I'm within maybe 10 or 15 of having seen everything at this point. God. And I was alarmed because I'm like, I didn't think this could even happen. Uh-huh. Like, I didn't, I didn't, I, like, it's the stupidest thing to think. Like, of course it could happen. Uh-huh. Numbers run out, you know, 80 <laughs> is the highest number to quote, or well, to misquote Mr. Show. But, uh, like, you're going to get there eventually. And I yeah. was like, oh my God, now, now I'm in a weird position where, like, with his books, uh, there's been some titles that I have not read over the last, 10 or 15 years that have been a conscious decision where I'm like, I'm going to set these aside. One day there will be no more Stephen King books. And I want it like a little, little, uh, little backup trove to work from, Uh you know? Uh, but I am rapidly approaching the point where I have no adaptations (laughs) that I have not seen. And that's just mind blowing. Yeah. That's really, that's kind of impressive and also terrifying. The good news is there's like 25 more in development right now. So (laughs) I don't think we're, it's still, that's a lot, man. And I, (laughs) that's unbelievable. I'm trying to think like the most recent King book I read. I don't even remember exactly what it was. There was something I read a couple of years ago, um, but most of them fall. Like the Institute, maybe that kind of hit pretty big. I did not read the Institute. No, I I think I wanted to. I still haven't read that one. Yeah, me neither. I loved, I mean, by the not this isn't recent or anything like that, but I remember I loved eleven twenty two sixty three. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I loved that a lot. I remember kind of that was I don't know I thought that was a really spectacularly good book and actually not a bad yeah. adaptation either. Yeah, uh, wasn't so big on the on the show. Maybe I, I think maybe I'm wrong. Well, I'm wrong. well, no, you're I I don't you know you're not wrong. If you liked it, you're you're No, but your I, I'm saying it as I haven't seen it in so long. You know that kind of feeling? Well, right. well, I'll tell you this. I I felt like Franco was just so wildly miscast. Totally. That it it took me out of the show to a point where I couldn't even watch it. Like I think I watched one or two episodes of it. In fact, we have like we've had a running joke on this show about like <laughs> no one has actually finished eleven twenty two sixty three. Like everyone gets X number of episodes in before they're like, okay, that's enough for now. I um, actually, I actually did it, and I remember it was like one of Hulu's like first things before Hulu. Right? Was yeah. Hulu. So I think that's what it was, and I think my wife and I watched it together, and we were like, that was. But now, literally, I, I literally remember nothing about it. So maybe it's not great. <laughs> Glass half full it, it, from Patrick Fluscher. Thank you, which doesn't help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there, there's an interesting connection here because uh, last time I revisited the Dead Zone book, I did the audiobook, and Franco narrates the audiobook. No, he does indeed, and uh, and I think I mentioned this last time, so apologies yeah, if I'm yeah, repeating but myself. But do it again. But it's but it's one of the the funniest fucking things. Listening to that audiobook, he's a pretty good audiobook narrator. Uh, but the thing he got to the uh, doctor um, who's, you know, a Polish, <laughs> an old Polish guy, and he puts on his accent, which I swear to God is just as Tommy Wiseau from Disaster Artist. <laughs> and so every time, every time that character who has all the like heaviest shit in, in the book, you know, he's the one that, you know, has the whole conversation with Johnny about like, what do you do if you, you know, if you have the ability to see who Hitler would become, would you kill him or would you not? You know, like all these heavy, like what if conversations between 
the two characters and it sounds like Tommy Wiseau is, is the one doling out all this, this, this like deep, deep felt Johnny, stuff. Johnny, what yeah. if you could go back and kill a baby Hitler? <laughs> you, dude, you are about 95% on exactly <laughs> what it sounded like on his audiobook. That's not an exaggeration. But you, Eric raises a point. You are here to talk about the dead zone. You know, you you said this was the the first King book you read. Obviously, it got a very solid adaptation from David Cronenberg, who, good Lord, that guy just does not miss. First of all, can you describe the plot of The Dead Zone for anyone who is unfamiliar with it? The story, our hero, Johnny, um, is a teacher uh, in a lovely relationship uh, with another teacher, um, and he gets into a car accident that puts him into a coma for five years. And when he arises from the coma, mm-hmm. he is able to, by touching people, either see immediate events that are happening or future events or past events, basically. And that's it. And it takes us through different journeys of different characters we meet that he kind of uh, affects their lives or affects the future of what's happening. And while, you know, I just, I I think the movie is so brilliant and I hadn't seen it in a long time and watched it again, obviously, because we were going to talk about it. And my, I keep bringing it my wife because she doesn't like any of these kind of things. And I made her watch it with me and we finished it and she was like, wow, that was so much better than I thought it was going to be. Um, it's pretty brilliant. And the most brilliant part about the movie, besides Cronenberg is really, you know, I have my own love of Cronenberg, but Christopher Walken is everything in that movie. Yeah. Oh, for real. I mean. Like, it's, it's, it, it's incredible. It's really kind of mind-blowing. And I mean, right away. And we he's become not a parody, but a little bit, you know? I mean, our, it's all just imitations now is all anyone does of him. And you forget how brilliant that man is. And this performance may be my favorite Christopher Walken performance ever. I mean, he carries the whole movie on his shoulders wonderfully well. Really amazing. He's a magnet. He's a magnet. Like you just can't not watch him in the intensity in his eyes when he's need you to, to be focused on him is there, but he's also, you know, the sweet Johnny Smith before the accident and you totally buy it. No, right. And the emotion which he has to hit a lot of times. Like there's a scene where um, Brooke Adams, he runs into her at his house. You know, she comes with her husband because they're, you know, talking about what's his name, Stilson. And anyways, he's Mm -hmm. surprised by seeing her. And when she leaves his like breakdown and also the best is when he finds out he's been in a coma for five years. Um, Yeah. Remarkable. I mean, really, you know, as an actor, we have our moments that we're like, oh, God, we get a script or we do something that we're like, that's going to be so hard. And you think about that scene. And I mean, it's a movie filled with those scenes that he must have thought like, oh, my God, that day we're doing this scene or this scene. And he's just really wonderful in it. A thing I love about the Dead Zone, like the the movie, is how understated it is. Yeah. You know, it's just so Yeah, I mean, it's dialed back. For Cronenberg, for one thing. I mean, you're getting those Cronenberg touches. Dude kills himself with the scissors and and Uh what have you. But it's also like, it's just a very low-key movie. Yep. You know, and and Walken's performance, though, as you already pointed out, is like, Walken, as as an actor, as an icon, 
you know, is, has been parodied so many times that, um, you know, he's, he's almost a living meme at this point, but yeah. yes. you know, here he's, he's delivering on that, you know, plenty. You're going to, you're going to get the walk in pronunciation on things, but also like, it's also an understated performance Yes, and yes, just, just gorgeous. This movie it's, yeah. I, well, that's, I, it's so underrated in the canon of Stephen King movies. I, I find it unbelievable that it's so underrated because it's a an incredible movie. Like, it, there's not a lot of them for me that feel like standalone just are great movies, and this yes. movie is one of them. And it's also what's what's amazing about it that my wife was saying is it feels like vignettes. You know, like the mm-hmm. first sort of quarter of the movie is the intro. And then, totally. then it's these little pieces, but then there's the serial. Because when the serial killer segment stopped, my wife was like, wait, what's the rest of the movie? <laughs> right. Like, she kind of thought that was going to be the whole thing. And then the, our intro into Stilson through the the rich guy. And it's just, it feels like disjointed, but in a way that totally works. Yeah, absolutely. It does. We're asked all the time what like the most underrated Stephen King movie is. And it's hard to to say the dead zone because everybody who knows it appreciates it as much as they should. Right. Yeah. But you're right. It It's weird that it doesn't really have the impact. We have people all the time because in the intro music to our show, we have the ice is going to break sound clip in there. And, you know, we've had literally legit had people who are big King fans ask us like, Oh, I don't know what that one, what's that one from. Ugh. And it's so weird how this yeah. is just, how this has just kind of fallen through the cracks a little bit. Cause for years when people would talk about like what, you know, what should be on criterion, like my number one answer was always dead zone. Uh-huh. Like that is, you know, it's a, it's a visionary director kind of at the peak of his powers, like visual powers. You talked about how beautiful it is. The, the, uh, all the nighttime stuff, like especially in the tunnel and everything it's, it's up there with, oh you know, God. like yeah. third man, you know, it's like yeah. of use of, you, you know, use of uh, dark tunnels and shit. I forgot and that tunnel. That tunnel moment is unbelievably beautiful. I mean, there's it, it's a, like yeah. that, but yeah, it's it's just it, it fires on all cylinders. It holds up. You know, you watch it now; it's still great. And I think, like you were saying, a lot of people watching it who missed it the first time and they watch it now, they'll go in expecting Saturday Night Live Christopher Walken, you know, it, in the movie, and and they're gonna yeah. get knocked flat by yeah. his genuine. Mm-hmm. Even his little so, subtle difference from the for in the first sec like six seven minutes of the movie, as a right. teacher and his smile, he has a lightness to him that obviously goes away, and right. it's much more walk in the rest of the movie. But that opening, and because he, we, my wife and I were like, wait, he looks like a baby. Like they made him look younger, <laughs> and he right. he's been so sweet, and uh, he has that really gentle energy. And um, boy, he's good just so good. And then I remember, if I remember correctly, I of course have not read this book in, you know, a million years, but Stilson's a much bigger part of the book. Right. And mm-hmm. yeah. And there's a lot more like investigating uh, on Johnny Smith's part, you know, because he, he gets, uh, I think he goes and like t- shakes hands with all the, like a ton of politicians. I think he shakes like Carter's hand. He finds mm-hmm. Jimmy Carter and sees he's going to be president someday, you know, like, uh, like all this stuff. And and so there, there's like this weird investigatory section of it where Smith's kind of grappling with the talent that he has and, but he doesn't want it because every time he uses it for good, it hurts him. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and that, that's, you know, that's such a great Stephen Kingism. Yes. You know, here's a guy who didn't ask for this, 
who just wants his old life back, knows he can't get it back, that that's impossible, but also has a heart big enough knowing that he can help people and he can't help but get involved even when he doesn't want to. And every time he does, it fucks him. It fucks him over hardcore. He can, he saves people's lives. He can, he saves the little boy from drowning. He saves, you know, it's like he, uh, uh, he catches the serial killer, but every single time that comes back and, and hurts him Uh and, you know, it stops him from having the normal life he wants. And that is, that is such a great, rich character dynamic thing. And, And not only is the movie underrated, I think the book is fairly underrated and overlooked for, you know, in favor of like The Shining and The Stand right. and all these other just monster hits that King had written. If the only book he'd ever written was The Dead Zone, he would be held as one of the best yeah. Um, yeah, horror authors. Yeah. Yeah. That's so funny. I What I loved in the movie also was um, the the rich guy when he when he doesn't listen to him fully, but he right. touches the son after he says, don't do it. And then the son is fine. But then the rich guy's like, we're going to do it anyways. And then when he, he calls, like there's such great subtle moments when then Johnny calls to see if the boy and the boy picks up. There's just such great character. Even that guy, that, that rich dude, I wish I remembered his name. That guy was wonderful. And he's a really good actor. And I forgot right. that actor's name. Um, right. Yeah. And he has that like thousand yard stare or something. Right. Because the, all the other kids still went and drowned. Right. I mean, and that, that was so remarkable. It's such a remarkable choice as an author or as a direct, whatever. I don't remember it in the book, but uh, that he still takes those kids out on the lake. Yeah. In the, that in guy's the name is uh, just for the record. That guy's name is Anthony Zerb. That's it. And I think he was in like a Bond movie. Um, yeah, uh, he's fantastic. That was just all. That whole storyline was lovely. Um, uh, he's in the Omega Man. Uh huh. Is he? Is he in that Richard Pryor, uh, a Gene Wilder movie? With See No Evil. Oh, I, I think where, where, they're, where the they're, they play the blind characters. I, uh, I think that he's the bad guy in that. Look, let me look. Be. Yeah, he is. He plays oh Sutherland. Yeah. and I because yeah. I remember the twist of that is it's a character that like you don't know is the bad guy or you know is the bad guy, but you don't realize till the end that he's blind as well, and he's setting uh-huh. everybody up. It, it's it's ridiculous, but. Um, I think in the book, from my God, and something this motherfucker's that been me. in everything. Did you know? He, I'm sorry to interrupt, but he was in Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions. No hmm. memory, but he looks familiar. So he, mm. I feel like I've seen him my whole life. He's one of he's those. G- yeah, he's got one of those faces. Uh-huh. Like he was in Rooster Cogburn. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Cool Hand Luke. Holy shit! Yeah. He's oh, just been I everywhere. Not actually. I saw that a couple years ago. Oh, yeah. and Parallax View. Love Parallax View. Anyhow, so the, I'm uh, sorry. Yeah. So I the thing that like struck me on my recent reread is is the the lake stuff isn't the frozen lake isn't in the book. I if my mem- unless I'm my memory is completely shot, which it could very well be. But I think in the book, Johnny is tutoring an older kid. He's like a sports jock kind of kid yeah. in, in like high school. And uh it's not it's not, you know, him and his friends going out and, and a tragedy happening, but it's like at their graduation party, like the place burns down wherever they're going to they're going to go. Um, yeah, that's I, I correct. actually like the, I like the way that Cronenberg does it, though, because it makes a lot more sense for Johnny as a character to be emotionally connected to, you know, a tween, like a 12 year old, you know, because that's, yeah. he's a teacher like this guy, you know, he's going off. He's he's an adult. I mean, he's graduating high school for fuck's sake. He's an adult. It's less of a. A thing for the audience, I, I think, to 
to be like, oh, well, you know, no, you have to save this person, you yep. know. And and it's also so smart, and I keep harping on this, but it's so smart that King uses that as a way to go, this is what Johnny's real passion is. This is what he loves to do. He loves teaching. Uh-huh. This is his out. He's getting away from all this shit. He's saving this kid who he's bonded with through this thing that he loves in the movie uh, and in the book is such a great character thing. And he, I think it's accentuated a lot better in the movie. With, yeah, uh, and with also being what's, more, what's more terrifying than falling through ice? For sure. Oh my god! Could you? Yeah, imagine? there's there's tons of. There's, I think the Omen Part Two. Do you mean the Omen Two yeah. has an has an ice an ice scene? Yeah, that's so funny. Shows up I recently yeah. recently watched the Omen. We won't get off track, but I recently watched the Omen and love it so much I can't even believe it. And then I went and I was like, I gotta watch the trailer for Omen Two. Because I remember, <laughs> I didn't want to watch the movie, but I remember there being like six great deaths, and right, uh, you know that ice thing is in the trailer, as is the bird and the elevator and the. Anyways, right. Uh, I also, think it's underrated. Ice scene in the Good Son, sorry, oh, Macaulay yeah. Culkin, and, yeah. and former King Cast guest, Mr. Elijah Wood. Yes, that, I don't that think a, I don't. I forgot that's in there. Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I don't think Elijah uh, has. I don't think he likes talking about the good son, but um, <laughs> I can't imagine. Yeah, I, I, I introduced him as the goodest <laughs> son, and he he had a laugh, but I think that's about as as far as he wants that's to go. As as that goes. <laughs> yeah, um, but I I think the uh, the omen two is kind of underrated. It, it's once again, I guess I'm just drawn to these these like complicated characters at the center of this thing, because the easiest thing in the world to do after the omen is to make a, an evil kid movie. Right. Uh-huh. But what they do with Damien is so interesting that he's, he doesn't want to be the, the son of Satan, right? He doesn't want to be the antichrist. He's, he's this kid who just wants to live his life. He, he loves his friends. He is, you know, he has relationships <laughs> and all this stuff. Let and, me live my and, own life, dad. <laughs> Well, but you know, Satan. It, it's just a complicated character thing that I feel like we got a lot more in the the seventies and in early eighties. I, I think you may be right. I think I like it more than I thought. I just I loved the Omen so much, and when I watched the trailer, right. it was like it felt like they were just kind of doing the same thing a little bit again. But um, you know, by putting in all these like great deaths, and they were like, let's get some incredible actor who was you know in the fifties, like, and you know it just felt a little repetitive but uh i remember yeah, you're loving, not wrong i remember loving it when i saw it my favorite thing now quickly to go back to dead zone is i just my yeah. favorite moment my favorite thing about the whole story is the fact that he doesn't kill stilson that ending is so perfect and once again right I don't know if that's in the book yeah uh, does anyone know that? Is that the end of the book that he, a photographer gets a picture of him holding the baby up? Yes, I think so. But it's not um, Brooke Adams's kid. Fine. Doesn't that little, that right. is lovely, right. but more the idea that he, he doesn't kill him. So th- this character is not martyrized, or anything, but instead the real truth is shown to the world about who this person is or what, you know, becomes was cause he kills himself. Uh, Martin Sheen. Right. But I thought that, ending it couldn't be better and i'd forgotten it until i was watching it and then when the baby i was like oh shit he picks the baby up i loved it loved 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 well let's explore that for a bit i agree with you but i'm i'm curious on your thoughts of what difference it would make if he had killed still because then it villainizes uh johnny because then and it martyrizes stilson yeah because the world doesn't know what Stilson's going to become. He's Marty Sheen. I mean, he's this like charming, lovely guy. You know, I mean, we know he's not, but to to the world, he is. And so, if he had killed him, 
it becomes madman kills what could have been an amazing, you know, Kennedy like figure. But instead, it's madman tries to kill the this guy who uses a baby as a shield, and it's like, holy shit, how bad is this dude? So mm-hmm. it, it villainizes to the world Stilson, and it wouldn't have had he died. That's kind of my theory. The first time we did this title, about a year ago, I remember before the recording of that episode, uh, Eric and I being like, well, there's probably going to be a lot of talk in this episode about the comparison between Stilson and Trump, because, you know, there were there were a lot of comparisons to be made at oh. that time. You know, there was there was a period where I remember there was like a photo of fucking Trump holding up a baby at some sort of event. And you could like put them side by side. And it was like the exact same shot uh-huh. of, from the movie. I remember that picture. Yeah. So I'm I'm curious. Uh, we are no fans of of Trump here. Apologies to you, Patrick, if oh, you, you happen to be. Trust me. <laughs> Trust Just me. making sure. No one is no. There, no one is less of a fan than myself. Uh, yes, you're in good company. So, do you think the comparison is is fair? Uh, no, Stilson would have probably been a better president. even though we know that he literally launches nukes yeah Yeah. because trust me stilson look stilson's like a smarter trump uh yeah see that's that's the thing so that's the exact by saying but yes stilson is is my nightmare of what could happen there are smarter trumps out there and luckily he is dumb uh but uh you know it's funny i didn't have it as much because also Stilson felt like a career politician and whereas Trump just feels like a you know reality show dummy. So right. it didn't feel quite the same to me. If that makes sense, I mean No, it I does. It. Yeah, I thought I, I I read a bunch of articles that that were like Dead Zone predicted Trump and then watching it again I'm like not really. What they predicted is a really I don't know like shrewd politician and trump never felt like that he doesn't feel like a politician at all or yeah he doesn't well, he doesn't earn he, he couldn't hold greg stilson's jock exactly in terms of being a politician exactly it's like right. the argument you would hear about you know people would compare trump to hitler and then the argument is well trump didn't launch a holocaust yeah. well de- kind of debatable uh depending yes. on how you look at it yes yes uh well, but and i think hitler maybe was smarter uh, and yeah, absolutely. Meaning like, he's you know, the most awful dude in the world. But it, I mean, the one thing is Trump is awful and not smart, which is a terrible yeah. combination. Fucking makes, for yeah, better, yeah. makes for maybe potentially could have been a worse four years. But um, anyways, watching it, I didn't I didn't have quite that comparison. I think had Trump been shot at and had there been a baby, he probably would have picked it up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, oh, absolutely. no question, yeah. dude. But yeah, the, no. the difference is, is that that wouldn't have... Uh, uh, derailed Trump's political I gotta life. Tell you, though. That's the other thing. The, it his, never would. His base would have been like, "Well, listen, when you you know when you got to protect yourself, you do whatever you can or something." Stupid. Right? They, they would have made some excuse baby's about gonna, how. Hey man, hey man, I'm gonna tell you, uh-huh. babies can absorb some bullets. Oh my god, you know what I'm saying? Terrible. Oh, you know, that, God, what a spiral. You know, um, but yeah, he didn't have he was a actually vest, saving that you know, baby. What are you I don't do? know if you noticed. Exactly. That's exactly <laughs> it. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I, I, I found Stilson just to be a nightmare version of a great politician. You know, right. but still, I think the comparison that that is apt there, though, is that Stilson is a. It d- develops a cult of personality. Yes. especially in the movie. Like in in the book, you get more of just the. 
you get how he he's like controlling people via his meanness, like in, in the inner circle, and he's controlling everybody through violence and through through mm-hmm. like more mob corruption. tactics, kind of. Yeah, yeah, corruption and and all that stuff. In in the movie, it's it's way more about his personality. Like that's what he's he's getting. I mean, you get that glad, glad handing the first time you see him when Johnny Smith you know, sees him at, at uh, the rich dude's house that he's tutoring his son yep. and all that. And then he gives him a button and, you know, and all this stuff that is more of the, the Trump thing where it's like, here's my brand and here's me using my personality there. But yeah, I think you're right. The Trump also is very much like he's never hidden his egocentric, you know, side and Stilson's very much trying to play himself as the common man. Exactly. Right. Totally. Um, so, yeah. So yes. you, there, there is a world of difference between the two, but uh, but they both share that cult of personality. It's just him having place. that button is such a brilliant moment as well. By the way, that like right, you know, you know, like something's coming, but uh, because <laughs> he doesn't touch him. But I thought that was really great. Um, you know, I just I don't know that whole thing about would I would you kill Hitler? I love all of that. I love and I just once again. Right love that he doesn't kill him because it makes him and that Johnny die. It all, it's all poetic and beautiful and it's a great ending. And I love it so much. I think we asked uh, Alex winter the same question. And I think I'll end up asking it for any guest that chooses the dead zone. But Patrick, if you had Johnny's powers, mm-hmm. you could touch someone, predict their future. Like, are you using it as a party trick? Are you, are you trying to go out and save the world? Like, are you scared of it? Like, what is what is your approach? You wake up tomorrow, you got this, now what? Well, if I'm exactly me uh, with a kid yes. and all my, I, I would not be using it, no. Because. But, but yeah. you got to touch your kid. I'd wear gloves. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I, you would avoid it at all times? I would. Oh, you guys, I don't want to know. I think Johnny was a great character because King was smart. He didn't have anything sort of holding him down. No anchors, no more like, and he still didn't even want to use it. But when you've got like, I've got a family, like I would never want to know anything about my family. What was going to happen? I I don't, I don't love the idea of knowing someone's future. I don't look, he saved the world because he, you know, showed everyone who Stilson really was. But Uh I got to tell you, no, the idea of touching my kid and seeing something awful uh, whether I could fix it or not. Cause I'm also a believer in usually uh, things can't be changed, but mm. that goes out the window with this. Cause he saves the little girl in the fire. He, but what's his name? Uh, Herbert Lom, when he tells him your mom is alive and he calls, but he doesn't, and he goes, it wasn't meant to be. I think that's a right. moment too, because it's, it is that character chose like this wasn't meant to happen. So you wouldn't even like fuck around. Like, well, you're maybe. taking it, you're taking a meeting with a director. Yeah. You're angling for a part. Yeah. You can okay. you can find out if you got the part or not. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I, I think temptation would eventually it, listen, listen, it probably would. I'm just trying to like I gotta tell you, it kind of seems like my nightmare to be honest with you. I, I think it would give me a lot of anxiety. Oh, for sure. So I, I mean it would fuck you up like in can you imagine the ways in which this would fuck I, you up? I can't. That's what the now I'm 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 mm. getting uh anxiety right now, even thinking <laughs> <laughs> see, see this this isn't as big of a deal to me as like what if you could read minds like that's oh if you could read minds and that to me is the worst because then yeah like just knowing what people's unfiltered like 
desires and secrets and like all that stuff would dr- drive me fucking insane. Yeah, if you couldn't control it, yeah. so it was constant. Right. That but if you could right. control it, I would take that one. I'd be all right with that. If, yeah, if I could if I could like and seeing a future is different from like touching somebody and fucking finding out that they're a kid toucher or yes. you know or something exactly. insane that I just like that's a little bit different than seeing what could happen to them down the road. That's, Especially that's, if it's something to yeah. change. Yes. That's what would give you know, me that, the that's what would give me the agita of it all. But I would just like I said, maybe I'd wear gloves ninety eight percent of the time and then it came, right. you know, just take them off and be like, Oh, in this moment I'd like to know and then, you know, uh, lead to some to some change or something. You're in line at Starbucks. Oh my some God. guy's being an asshole in front of you. And yep. you're like I'm going to take off the gloves and tap this guy on the shoulder and find out what sort of horrible thing is going to happen to him. There you go. So now it's like, oh, I think I'm 105 with his with his wife and they they love each other dearly. Yes. They die peacefully in their bed. Damn it. Totally. (laughs) I got to do something about this. I'm going to have to assassinate (laughs) this guy. I think we need that evil Johnny Smith. I think I would use it like sparingly. Um, I'm not like a guy. I don't like to be touched by anyone, you know, to begin with. Uh-huh. Like, uh, weirdly, I'm a hugger, but also like, wait, you're I don't a- like it when someone casually touches me. Uh-huh. It weirds me out. Uh-huh. In fact, like, let's say um, I'm trying to think of an. Ex- OK, here you go. Like uh, you're um, you're smoking a joint with someone or maybe something along those lines. And uh I got to pass a lighter to someone. I won't even pass it to them directly. I will put it down on a table in front of them and let them pick it up. It's a really weird thing. And I didn't even notice I was doing it until, I don't know, some years ago when somebody pointed it out and I was like, yeah, I am doing that. And it's like, I don't like casual touching. I'm not, I'm not into it. A hug has meaning. Casual touching feels weird to me for some reason. It, so I'm, it I'm not, it, I, you had me until, I mean, don't you just want to pass the lighter? I'd be like, if you wouldn't hand me the lighter, I'd be like, what are you doing? Why are you putting it on the table? Just hand it. Well, I'm a fucking weirdo. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. to tell you. You yeah. know, this is a yeah. weird thing. You're just about being me. polite. I think that's supposed to be good etiquette, right? When you pass salt and stuff, you're supposed to put it on the table and not hand it directly to people. No, I am not thinking about etiquette at all. <laughs> I'm not trying saying. to be polite. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying it's, to, I'm trying to help you out Wampler for the, the future. When you when you bring this up, you can say, no, I'm just very demure. I'm not worried, I'm I'm well not, I'm not worried about being polite. Trust me. Um, <laughs> you'd be great with this power then because you don't want to touch anybody anyway. So you'd be fine. Right. And and so I think I would use it sort of sparingly and I would use it, you know, in specific circumstances. But also, like, I kind of agree with Patrick because I wouldn't want the fucking responsibility. That's I don't want right. I, I don't want it like to use the Starbucks guy. As an example, I don't want to touch this guy and then find out like he's going to drive a, a Mack truck through a preschool. I'm like, oh, God damn it. Now I got to deal with this. Yeah, I got to go right. fucking talk to someone and convince them this is real. And then that's, I got to do this. And Yes, that's right. the hard part is having to then convince everybody like this thing I have, you got, you know, it's, it, it, it's almost yeah. too much. So it's a laziness thing. Yes. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> just like this is too much work, dude. Yeah. Like, yeah. But also like what a great party trick, though. If you could pull that out and be like, you're going to die at 43 and you're going to die at 89 and you're <laughs> yeah. going to, uh, I'm sorry to tell you, you're going to, you're going to get hit by a bus in about 20 minutes. This is the minutes. worst party ever. <laughs> <laughs> Shouldn't have invited well, me, dude. Yeah, fair, fair. Well, so, something that you touched on there that would be 
I think intrinsic in this is there's always going to be, you wake up tomorrow with this, there's that excitement when you figure it out. Oh my God, I can actually see things that, that will come to pass. Sure. Right. It's like, there's that excitement. Then you'll, you'll be fucking touching everybody. The gas station guy, like you just be like, Oh, I want to see what's going on with you and you. And then you're going to hit that thing where you either can't uh, you, change it. Right. Or you get a taste. You get a taste of it where you're going to get bit. I mean, and I think that's the, it's such a cliche, but it works so well here, which which is the, you know, the the gift is a curse and the curse is a gift, uh-huh. right? And uh, to me, the stuff that, that would be very appealing about it would be to, like, shut down, like, there's a th- that whole section with uh, Richard Dees, who's the uh, tabloid reporter that pops up later in the, the Night Flyer, who gives Johnny Smith shit uh-huh. about yeah, it, and, yeah. and he fucking just puts him right into his fucking place, right? Like he he ends up like reading him and mm-hmm. and what you know watching that happen. It's like the petty part of part of me would be like, well, it's all worth it just so I can shut this one asshole up, you know, <laughs> you know who doesn't though, believe actually. me. I now yes, I would be totally into that aspect of it. I would rather have this power than like the shining power, which seems yeah. way scarier to me. Yeah. Yeah. Look, like Danny gets visions in The Shining, right? right. Where it's yeah. it's just all horror, you know, no matter what. Yeah. Uh, we don't right. see Danny like ever having visions of like a picnic, you <laughs> right. know? So so I'm out on The Shining power. Uh-huh. Like, look, let me rank my Stephen King powers for you. Number <laughs> one, Firestarter. I would mm. love it if I could blow some shit up if I had to. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. That's good. Two... Dead zone. I like this. I can pull it out as as needed, so to speak. Right. Uh, three, the shining power. And four is John Coffey in the Green Mile. I don't want any oh, anything yeah. to do with that because I feel like like, you know, breathing in someone's sickness and then like vomiting it no, out like horrible. a cloud of bees. Yeah, it seems like it would be very. Painful. You, uh, you left I, out, but you left out Carrie. Well. Okay, that's that's telekinesis. I'll wrap that into like Firestarter powers. Well, you know, pyrokinesis, telekinesis, right? No, I'm gonna They're go both kinesises. That's true. They're yeah. kinesises. However, Carrie's is like, I'd like to move shit if I don't want to get up and get the remote or something. Uh, I feel like but I'll take that but, power. But Carrie's know, but- power. Yeah, as Carrie's powers seem to be more id, right? She she's not in control. She's Dark Phoenix, exactly. you know, when she's using her power, right? So it's only destructive. But that whereas, was, like, I, th- I think Char- I think Charlie McGee, the whole point of Firestarters is that she can she learns to be independent and control that power, and she has the ability to to focus it. Maybe Carrie could have if she had oh, been, you know, she could have a father figure. Carrie like, seems like she needs to be an advanced state of being upset in order to Distress, access yeah. those powers. Right. Yes. But I think that was just, I think she could have with, with loving parents, she could have managed them and maybe access them in a, in a positive right. time as well. That's what I want to say. I think moving ashtray helpfully. Yes. I do. I kind of, <laughs> you are right though. It is always when there's, you know, it's a bad, it's a bad power, but I feel like there's good still there. So I'm still going to take it over. Firestarter seems to be the best one though. But I don't know. Yeah. yeah. How would yeah, you that, use Firestarter powers? You got some plans for that? No, not really. I don't know. Maybe when I was younger, I would have used it. For, for now, I'd just be like, I'd like the fireplace. I mean, once again, it's, <laughs> it's all lazy. All the powers are just lazy. The candles at a romantic dinner. Yes. Perhaps. Yes. Honestly, yeah. it's, it's kind of exhausting to walk around lighting seven candles. So I could just do it from my <laughs> couch. 
Can you imagine how smooth that would be, though? Yes. Like, if you're on a date and you're just like, yes. check this out. Vroomp. Yes. And, like, the whole room goes up. Oh, also buddy. terrifying. You're getting laid. Well, maybe <laughs> she's terrified, too, because you're crazy and you're able to light fire. I mean, there's that side of it. It could be weird. Well, just say you're a magician or something. It's <laughs> All fine. <right>, fine. <laughs> <laughs> Do we have anything else we want to hit on uh, on Dead Zone here? I feel like I kind of went cover to cover. I mean, I I, I yeah. love it. And I would say to anyone who's listening who has not seen it, just go watch it tonight. It's on Hulu. I think that's where I got it. I think Scream Factory is putting it out as well in like a collector's edition Blu-ray as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I, th- I think it's coming out. Um, Patrick, yeah, I, looking at your credits, I mean, I see no Cronenberg on here. Surely no, you're no gunning Cronenberg. for that. You know what else there isn't? Stephen King. Mm. Oh, that's true. I don't if you, you fix that. Okay, you can you can pick any role in any Stephen King right. project. What do you got? Carrie. I'll be Carrie. Um, <laughs> a gender flipped Gary. Sure. Um, Carl. God, I don't know. Honestly, I, I, <laughs> Carrie with a Y. Yeah. Oh my God, Sierra Y. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, what would I? I don't even at this point. I don't even know. To be totally honest, I just feel like. Uh, I'm too old for all of it, but if I, you know, any part I'd want, like Johnny's actually a part I would have loved to have played, you know, 20 years ago. And I'm not just saying that because that's the one we're doing. I just think that may be one of the best parts there is. Let's say some direct, let's say Cronenberg, for instance, is yep. remaking The Shining. He offers you Jack Torrance. Never, no way. I'm not playing that. I'm not playing that game. <laughs> Even with Cronenberg helming. No, I'm not playing. I'm not doing any. No, 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 no. And by the way, controversial opinion. (laughs) I'll I'll take whatever tweets anyone wants to get mad at me about this. I saw right before COVID, I saw The Shining in the theater again, and I didn't like it. No. Why? What happened? I was not scared, even remotely. It felt so not scary. And this is in the theater, in a big theater. I felt not scared. I thought Jack was, it just didn't feel like a performance in the way Walken is a performance. Like it just felt so Jackie. And uh, I just didn't, I got to be honest with you, Scatman was great. Otherwise I was kind of like, I was a little bored and not scared. And I, and I don't want everyone to yell at me. When was the last time you saw it before that? I mean, uh, college. So early. Oh, really? Early nineties. Yeah. 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 So it had been a while. But I got to tell you, I just didn't. So no, even though I feel that way, I still would never. (laughs) Who's going to be, come on, who's going to do that? Who wants to, didn't they remake it? Well, they they did did the the miniseries adaptation. Who played it? Steven Weber from Wings. Oh God, I love him. We had had him on the show once and uh, he was very forthcoming about his uh, feelings about that production. And like the final product uh, got the impression that he was not entirely on board with it. But what was striking to me talking to him about that was that he was just completely fearless about taking on the role of Jack Torrance. That's amazing. I was I was like, didn't it fuck you up like beforehand to think I'm like stepping into this role? And he's like, no, nah, I didn't really think about it. Like, how could you not think about it? I can't <laughs> imagine he didn't think about it. Not saying he's lying, but holy shit. That's all I would think about, and that's why I wouldn't do it. He convinced <laughs> me during the course of that conversation that he really didn't give a fuck. And 
like I believe him on that, but I also think it's fucking crazy. Like yeah. how it would be like, God damn. It would be like taking over Mark Hamill on Luke uh, on Luke Skywalker yeah, yeah, yeah. or something like that. I mean, it know? really even more so. I mean, it's so iconic that it's like it's probably one of the most iconic roles in one of the most iconic movies. So I would not really be interested. Yeah. So I'm saying yeah. Robert Cronenberg. He can come back with something else. <laughs> <laughs> Very dead good. zone two. Deader zone. Deader zone. <laughs> the deadest zone. <laughs> This is usually the point in the program where we allow our guests to pitch or tease whatever they've got coming up next. Patrick, what do you have in the works right uh, now? Or what would you like to plug? I don't even know if I'm supposed to say it, but I mean, I don't care. What do I, I'm shooting um, American Crime Story, uh, the, the new season. Oh, uh, no shit? What's the, what's the topic? Um, impeachment, Bill Clinton impeachment. Oh, word. And it's who are like, you playing? I'm playing Sidney Blumenthal, who is a real guy who was uh, yeah. Clinton's advisor. Um, and uh, it's uh, Clive Owen as Clinton. That's and crazy. That that's a bizarre. He's choice. brilliant. He's brilliant. He's. Brilliant. I see it. I totally uh, see it. But and yeah, then Edie Falco, Edie Falco's Hillary. Um, oh my god! Okay. Uh, Beanie Feldstein is Monica. Oh, no. Yeah. Holy yep. shit. That's a great fucking cast. Well, it keeps going. It's 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 so many benches deep because my role is wonderfully fine. And it, so is everybody's besides. I mean, there's so many people in this, like so many great actors. It's kind of amazing to just sort of keep seeing everyone that gets cast. And there's probably a million people. I, I can say those because they're out and known. And like Sarah right. Paulson is Linda Tripp. And if you Google her, as Linda Tripp, there was like footage that was re- she would like put a picture on. You kind of won't believe uh, the it's the best wow. hair and makeup department on anything I've ever worked on ever. Yeah, I would Im- I would imagine to make that transition ever ever, um, ever. And the other thing that's remarkable about people's performances is as they did in OJ. Did you guys watch the first season? The OJ? Yeah, yeah. No one yeah, yeah. like no one does an imitation. They do like essence of, and it just is exactly what everyone it's just right. so wonderful to do it that way because it just makes you get lost in it so you're not watching like saturday night live so anyway so i'm yeah i'm still doing that for the next month as you're talking about this i remember when they announced this as the the new season of american crime story and i was like man i was the biggest fan of people versus oj yeah. that was just riveting to watch it's remarkable uncle juice but i remember like remember thinking i wonder if they're gonna bring back travolta to play Clinton. Thank God they didn't. He kind of did. Well, he, okay. Well, one, he was great in the first American crime story. Wait, having trouble hearing. Wait, that was my, that was my watch. My watch just said, <laughs> having trouble hearing you. So she's not a fan of, of John Travolta's go on. <laughs> Doesn't like that. But, but he was amazing in that first season of American crime story. And he also kind of played, Bill Clinton before in um, primary colors, primary, primary colors. colors, right? Right. And I, I remember thinking it would be a really subversive pick to have him come back and do like a. I haven't seen primary colors in many years, but my memory of it was that Travolta's performance in it was kind of like a kind of teddy bearish, yeah, or, or less insidious. And it would be really fun to watch him do like the fucking sinister version of that. Uh huh. That's you know? funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was. Really good in primary colors. I really was a fan of that. And uh, I think what Clive Owen has is just he's so charismatic. I, I'm a oh, enormous yeah. Clive Owen fan. And so uh, it's just a, a joy to just 
sit on the sidelines and watch him, you know, be charismatic and wonderful. Right. Did he put on cool. weight for it? Is he got a? Is he wearing makeup? Um, what's he's what's the deal? Makeup. I mean, it's a. It's like I said. It's a good essence of you know. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Talk about underrated. Like Clive Owen starred in Children of Men, which yes. I think is one of the best movies of the last twenty years. Ever. And uh, that's another one nobody fucking talks about anymore, and and it blows my mind that it's uh, really weird. They will. They will. As our world falls apart, apart more and more, people. Will be like, <laughs> right. Oh my god, prescient Children of Men. It's uh, <laughs> it's one of my favorite movies, like you said. It's one of my favorite movies, maybe ever, maybe in the top ten. I love that movie, and he's and he's uh, in Lisey's story right now. The the other yes, oh my god, it all comes back to Stephen King, which it I all comes watched. back to Stephen yeah. King. I have not watched that, so I don't have thoughts on that. But the backbone, he's all right in Lisey's story. I think he's a little. I think the way the character written is a little one note, you know. Yeah, uh, which I do not blame on Clive Owen. I yeah. guess I have to blame it on Stephen King since he wrote the script. But um, even when he is like, and it, this isn't often, but like if he is one note, it's still fucking Clive Owen. You're getting to watch Clive mm-hmm. Owen perform. And he's like, just you can't you can't take your eyes off. the. Guy. That's what I'm saying. He's you. There's something about him that is pretty spectacular. Um, For real. He's super charismatic. So, yeah, that's it. That's what I got. Well, awesome, we're man. looking forward to that for sure. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for being here today. This was a delight. Pleasure, you guys. Really pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Anytime. Let us know if you have another title you ever want to talk about. And please just keep killing it out there. We we love you and love seeing you and stuff. Thank Uh, you. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, man. Real honor to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Many thanks to Patrick Fischler for joining us for yet another deep dive into the life of one Johnny Smith. Love that Patrick Fischler. Super nice dude. Have you seen this ongoing thing about how Patrick Fischler and David Dustmalchen look alike? Some people can't seem to tell the difference. I've seen a lot of that yeah. in our mentions lately. Racist, but but yeah, I have seen it. It is yeah. deeply, deeply racist. I don't think they look alike at all, but I guess, I mean, maybe it's the strong eyebrows or something. Yeah, they got, Where, you know, they're, they're pale guys, dark be. hair. Yeah. yeah. They, they play, they can play kind of similar roles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I suppose I, that's I, true. I get it, but, but yeah. I guess my point here is that no, we didn't plan to have Desmulchin on the show and Patrick Fischler within the space of two <laughs> weeks. That just, that is a happy coincidence. We're not trying right. to confuse anybody, but we covered all our bases either way. So, little bonus for you. I suppose we should also throw a little thanks to Brian Fuller for actually making the connection for us to get Patrick on the show. That is true. Patrick was not familiar with the show ahead of time, but uh, by the end of that, he sounded ready for more. So uh, I I wouldn't be surprised if he pops up again, maybe with our old pal, Rich Summers. Eventually, we're going to get the entire Mad Men cast on. Got to get got to get John Hamm up in this motherfucker. Got to get the ham. Yeah, I got to get that Elizabeth Moss. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, pleasure to have him on. Uh, like that guy a lot. Love everything he does. So thank you, Patrick Fischler, for being here this week. Right. So next week, we have a really fun guest uh, who's kind of the rare author. We don't have a ton of authors uh, in our history of guests, and but we actually have quite a few coming up. And next week, we have a particularly interesting author tackling a more recent King book uh, and adaptation. And uh, Scott, you want to tell them what that is? The Outsider. The uh, Outsider. Outsider came out on HBO. I rewatched it 
in anticipation of this this episode before we recorded it. And uh, I love that adaptation. It's a little too long for its own good. And I think we get into that on the show. But uh, beyond that, those those first few episodes, you know, when it's really, really playing like gangbusters, um, they're just they're just fantastic. Right. And and I'm I'm very excited to reveal the guest on this one because it's it's as Eric said, it's a horror author. And well, he said it's an author. I'm saying it's a horror author. And <laughs> narrow in that field. <laughs> if you read horror, you know this guy's name. If you've been paying attention over the last several years. And I'm sure there's context clues. People can figure out uh, what books are coming out soon <laughs> that this person might be uh, uh, wanting to promote. So that is that is also true. Um, yeah. So lot, lots he, of hints. He is a hell of a guest. Uh, I was really excited to talk about that particular adaptation. And um, I'm, I'm hyped for everyone to hear this episode. Yeah. No, And it's a particularly fascinating kind of turning point for King because this is like the outsider seems to be his new obsession. Like this creature that's at the mm-hmm. center of this, this book, this is like the new era, you know, it's the Holly Gibney slash outsider era. That's what he seems to be uh, focused on much like he had his castle rock era and the, his era of dealing with the shop and everything they were up to. So it's a very interesting uh, book. It's a book that I really like. It's an adaptation we really like. It's a really fun guest coming in to chat with us about it. Speaking of things that are fun in the opposite sense. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Let's talk about uh, what's happening on the Patreon this Friday, Eric. Yeah, I'm going to let is... you do the honors oh, on this no. because okay. if I remember correctly, it was you that put this one forward more than yeah no so so i had the really dumb idea that i thought it would be really fun to involve this really cheap like knockoff (laughs) thing that i saw on amazon like not even saw but saw the cover for on amazon called stephen kang's sharks of the corn and uh i'm like oh this is gonna be real you know shitty and it'll be really fun let's do a commentary for it uh, and Scott was just like, I don't know, that's going to be, you know, mean we're going to have to watch that crappy movie. I'm like, no, it'll be fun. And then I watched the movie and and uh, I should have listened to Scott. Um, <laughs> this movie's real fucking tough. But uh, the for the commentary, we're, we're bringing in an old favorite. Why don't you uh, fill him in on that? Uh, we are bringing in Twitter's favorite son at Yui Bullocks. That's U W E B O L L O C S. He's about to launch his own podcast called, uh, I believe it's uh, Score Tracker, Scorekeeper. I should probably know. We'll get him to talk about it on the show. <laughs> but he's got a really good hook for that show, and I'm I am very excited to listen to it. But uh, he previously appeared in our commentary for Dreamcatcher, which is notorious for being the most disastrous commentary we have ever recorded so you know uh when eric was pushing this idea i was like yes but we're gonna have to bring in bullocks for sort of a repeat appearance if we're gonna go for these full-on train wrecks we need to have him in the back pocket um, this movie made me miss Dreamcatcher. let's just put it that way oh fuck i haven't watched it yet uh yeah yeah we're i was we're supposed the time to of this recording it. we haven't we haven't recorded the commentary that that is happening uh, tomorrow and uh, I did watch the movie in advance and uh, you guys are in for it. You guys are fucking in for it. Mm-hmm. As I explained to uh, our patrons, we put this to a vote on the Kingcast Twitter feed and it won overwhelmingly that that we should we should do this. 
Mm-hmm. And as I rationalized it to our patrons, you know, if this show is about exploring every nook and cranny in uh, in in the Stephen King world, then surely we have to dip into the Stephen King knockoffs at least once mm-hmm. for science's sake, if nothing else, and, mm-hmm. and investigate what's going on over there. So uh, you asked for it. You're going to get it. And it will be hitting this Friday on the KingCast Patreon which can be located at patreon.com backslash the Kingcast. No matter what, it's going to be entertaining because you're going to listen to oh, yes. uh, three adult men who are going to be in uh, near physical pain watching Utterly this. furious. So that'll be entertaining at the very least. Uh, but we can definitely say that the main feed is totally good to go for next week. Outsider, great guest. Um, and we'll see you guys then. Adios, folks. The KingCast is a Fangoria podcast production. The show is produced, hosted, and created by Eric Vespi, that's me, and Scott Wampler. Tira Ansley and Abby Goel are executive producers. Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.